Hello, welcome back to another episode of Happy Amblin. I'm your host, Diego Crespo. With me today is Macaringo. Hi, it has been like two months since we recorded last. We don't have to get into that right now. But what we do I have just to wanna, get into... I just need to point that out for all the dated references <laughs> that are in the upcoming episodes. You didn't like that I released Bulletproof and we're talking about the hot topic, uh, Terminator Dark Fate? Oh, yeah, we spend most of the time talking about Dark Fate. No, no, and the last Boy Scout and Shane Black, as one hey. does. And uh, the Lighthouse. And the Lighthouse, which are all pretty great films. Actually, yeah, all I like I like all those. Yeah, um, and I guess we should talk about that. This is the first time we're recording a Happy Amblin after the Oscar nominations came out. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, Uncut Gems was completely shut out of all awards. Yeah, because people are fucking morons. Um, yeah, that's going to go down as, like, one of the travesties. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know if, like, the Safdie brothers are, like, like they've got it. Like, they're going to be, like, a very prosperous career. But that will be a great movie forever. <laughs> yeah, like, any, anything and... could happen with them. Uh, I, I've been checking out their earlier stuff because I'd only really seen Good Time. And, um... They're too interesting. They'll never like go away. I don't think. But yeah, yeah. Like, but that can always shit. backfire. There's a lot of people in this industry that have not gone away that should have gone away. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no. They're like everything in movies. Nothing is an absolute. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Holy fuck. Uncut gems. They also How? did a they did a short film where they interviewed uh, James Toback. Are you gonna explain the interview or do I just leave that there? Oh, do you know who James Toback is? He's a filmmaker. Yeah, it's been reported of being uh, 38 women have accused him of sexual harassment or of assault. Ah, oh, didn't know that. Yeah, and he was kind of an open secret. Oh. Um, what's his name? Uh, oh, gosh. Uh, oh, fuck, now I can't remember his name. Guardians guy. James Gunn. James Gunn uh, blasted him for years. Oh, which okay. Which is the only reason I knew about it before it came out. <laughs> I don't know, you know, that's always a bit of a red flag, but hey. Yeah. Does... Spielberg hangs, hangs around with some interesting people. That's not the word I'd use to describe him, but... A lot of interesting people. Ah. A lot of interesting people. <laughs> keep, keep, keep an ear to the ground. Yeah, yeah, it's important to stay aware. This is a weird opening. Yeah. 1941. <laughs> The hit film 1941, which some people call a minor miracle, just because it did not sink Steven Spielberg's career. Um, yep. I will go on record saying, I don't think it's that bad, but boy, it is sure a lot of scenes that don't really work together, and sometimes by themselves. Matt, what are your thoughts on 1941? Um, It's fucking two hours long. <laughs> no, it's even longer than that, isn't it? It's like two twenty. Let me let me check. Actually, yeah. No. What is I had? Oh, I had like the extended version because there's a longer TV version. Mm-hmm. And that's I, the one I watched. Uh, that that's the one with the Christmas trees, right? Yes. Which is the yes. biggest laugh I got in the movie. <laughs> uh, 
Yes. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to it, but I also saw that version, and I, I guess the official time is one eighteen. I don't know if that's for It says here, uh, theatrical release, one eighteen, extended version, one forty six. Fucking... <laughs> this movie should be 90 minutes. Yeah, there's no reason for it to be that there's... long. Yeah, so, um, wow. Uh, I would say that this is a movie that if you took... There's, like, seven plots going on. <laughs> and if you maybe took out one or two, it would really work. Yes, I <laughs> That's agree. That's Because um, it's... Uh, I'm not, I won't say that I didn't laugh. Because there were definitely some funny moments, but there was a lot of uh, drags in, in between. And, uh... Yeah, it just doesn't work. That's really what it comes down to. It just it doesn't work. I th- I think there's we're gonna have some stuff to talk about at least. It'll be like fun for a little bit, and then we're gonna like end the episode significantly sooner than the film's runtime. But yeah, there's I. It's it's not like that interesting of a misfire, but it is a complete like misfire. Also, it's it's interesting in the sense that like Spielberg talks about that. Um, you know, he kind of, he's kind of down on himself by this movie. He talks about that this was like kind of his egomania got in the way. Mm-hmm. And uh, normally, like directors aren't great at guessing why their films failed, um, but that's not inaccurate, frankly. <laughs> this is just like this is just Spielberg burning money. <laughs> it's so out of control, and it's also I think it could have again. I think there's like a good story buried in this. And a very funny movie. It kind of reminded me of Blues Brothers a little bit. <laughs> and not just because uh, Belushi and Aykroyd are in it. Mm-hmm. But because it just, like, keeps spiraling out of control and, like, keeps escalating. And it's like, that could be... Like, I like comedies like that where it just gets crazier and crazier. And it just doesn't really come together here. It's kind of the vibe I wish a lot more comedies had nowadays. Just, I, I also wish it was strung together significantly better. But, like, yeah, like, comedies don't get wild and zany like this, you know? Like, I've seen a lot... I, I looked up a lot of reception and, like, uh, uh, critical reviews of the film. And a lot of people compare it to, like, Looney Tunes. And it, it totally is. Like, I totally see it. Just the way the camera moves, like, specifically, like, in the, the dance sequence later on. Oh, no, yeah, the, that dance number's pretty uh, nuts, actually. <laughs> uh, and I will say, I think that's, like, a genuinely great sequence like the direction of the sequences is i would say is not the problem it's just like again it it doesn't come together in any way that's like not exhausting or satisfying yeah there's there's a bit of an indulgence in this that i think gets in the way sometimes i normally like when directors indulge and here it kind of gets a little much at times Mm mm-hmm but uh, yeah, I would I would say I mean it's still Spielberg, at like the height of his powers. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, there's a quote I have from him on in a in an interview with the Rolling Stone. Do you want me to hold that? It's about his Spielberg's own reception to 1941. I guess we should open with it because this is kind of like the, honestly the only thing people seem to know about this movie is that it's Spielberg's bomb, which mm-hmm. it wasn't a financial bomb. But it did kind of get, like, destroyed by the critics. Yeah, and he doesn't even, like, address that head-on. He just says, and I quote, I can't correct the overall conceptual disasters in 1941, 
but I can get little pieces here and there that I think will help speed the pace. If you can't do anything about it, then you're at the mercy of what comics call the death of silence. You expect a laugh, and all there is is a hole. And that was Steven Spielberg speaking to Chris Haddonfield in Rolling Stone in 1980. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's that. Wow, that's like right after it. Yeah. That's not even like because like a lot of directors will like shit talk their last movie when they finally have another good hit. Mm-hmm. So like that's like a year before Raiders too. Yeah. And talk so. about a fucking comeback after that. His yeah, he, he has a pretty successful run after. I mean, Steven Spielberg. We all we all know what the fuck his track record is. Well, well, nineteen seventy nine. They didn't know. Well, I'm, right. For now, I'm just. Well, I'm just saying. Like this is the era of all the big directors just flaming out. You mm-hmm. know, we we uh, like this is uh, Friedkin with Wages of Fear. I mean, you have Coppola who does Apocalypse Now and it comes out as a hit, but it was also like a disaster of a production. And then his next movie, One from the Heart, was like a huge mess. Got Scorsese with New York, New York. Um, this is just like the very beginning of like all like those guys just destroying their careers, basically. Should I mention what it's about? <laughs> I feel like I sh- we sometimes hold off a little bit on that. I, I we can get it, we can give like the very basic setup, which is just that it's it's bas- it's just panic around Los Angeles following the Pearl Harbor attacks of 1941. So it's basically just like the end of December because, of course, those attacks happened at the beginning of... Holy shit, that's that's insane. Honestly, hold on. We gotta, like, wind it back a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is a movie... It's a comedy after the attacks of Pearl Harbor. Mm -hmm. It's basically set within the month of the Pearl Harbor attacks. That, That would be like doing a movie... Set in September 2001. <laughs> About how terrorists are everywhere. Because <laughs> this is like, it's a comedy. going to do that one day. I guess, maybe I gotta do it. But, <laughs> because one weird thing about this movie is that it's kind of meant to be like, oh, war paranoia, everyone's going nuts, isn't that zany and wild? And, but it's also like, actually, they're all right. <laughs> like... Because the Japanese really are trying to attack Pearl Harbor. I mean, they really are trying to attack Hollywood. Well, a couple things. I guess, the first off, I like that the overall idea of that, you know, just like the mishmash of, like, tone and, like, emotions. And Spielberg initially did want to do this as a musical. Oh, my God. Which I think would actually make it work a lot better, specifically because he's always wanted to do musical. And the dance sequence is, like, so far and away my favorite part of the movie. Um, but two, I would also absolutely cut out all the uh, the, the Japanese and attacking Hollywood stuff. Yeah, because yeah, this movie could I, I have been the movie funny. Strengthened without yeah, that. it would have been a lot funnier if it was just us like shooting at each other the whole movie. Mm-hmm. Like we we keep thinking we're under attack, but really it's just us, and that would have probably really helped. Uh, but they didn't do that. Yeah. Although shout out to. Uh, is this the only time they work together? Uh, Toshiro Mifun. Yeah, it's like the, I believe it's the only time he worked with Spielberg. That's really too bad, because that's a, it's a great actor and obviously a great director. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm sorry I was checking to see if... I, I, I don't believe so. I was trying to see if he did, like, uh, King, um, what's that, Empire of the Sun, but he didn't. Yeah, it's it, it, again, weird. Toshiro Mifun in a com American comedy film. <laughs> And he's basically the straight man. I don't think they really give him anything funny to do. Yeah, no. Uh, but and he's like, 
I know this isn't like a shocking take, but that Seven Samurai is one of the best movies ever made. And he's like, he's a very goofy character in that, and he just like kills it with like this the the broadest sense of comedy before he like hits you with like why he's like that, and it's like really tragic. But but talk about the cast of this movie. <laughs> Oh, okay. Hang on. Should we should we run it all down? Because there's like fifty people. I'll go through what I got. I got Dan Aykroyd, Ned Beatty, John Belushi, uh, Murray Hamilton from Jaws, the mayor in Jaws, <laughs> um, Christopher Lee, Tim Matheson from Animal House, Tashiro Mufuni, Warren fucking Oates, Robert Stack, Nancy Allen, John Candy, <laughs> Penny Marshall. <laughs> Like, this could have been, like, Spielberg's It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, almost. <laughs> I'm just like, get all these people together, just... Th- and I kind of like that, I think that Spielberg maybe feels like there's no clear story going on in it, because there's so many... Jo- I like that it's these, like, seven just insane storylines that all collide together at once. And I... I, I like that it's stacked that way. I just think that... Wait, did you mention Christopher Lee? I did mention Christopher Lee. Okay. I just really loved Christopher Lee. And... As a Nazi. Yeah. I wonder how he felt about that, because I'm pretty sure he's killed a bunch of them. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, now he gets to kill them metaphorically. I don't know. I, I don't know. <laughs> you saying he would have been a fan of Jojo Rabbit? There's a movie that also know. doesn't work. <laughs> Oh my god, this is totally Spielberg's Jojo Rabbit. Yeah, it kind of is. Although yeah. 1941 was not nominated for Best Original Screenplay. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Yeah, and again, I would, I, I, I've seen people who were very angry about Jojo Rabbit. And, um, I mean, that, opinions are opinions, but I think it's a movie that, if tweaked slightly, it could have worked a lot better. <laughs> and it's not a total failure, just as this movie isn't a total failure. Yeah, that, that's how I'll put it. Like, Jojo Rabbit, I think, is actually closer to being, like, a straight-up, like, solid, good movie. But 1941 is, like, remarkably more exciting to me just because of Spielberg's direction. Because this this is, like, the craziest movie he's ever made. Oh, yeah, and there's, like, this energy to it where it, like, because it, it's, like, keeps kind of topping itself. In terms of the zaniness, unfortunately, that doesn't always translate into comedy. Oh, God, no. I would say, I, we'll get into it, but it's that thing of if, if with the multiple different perspectives going on, if you aren't into one of the storylines, it totally fucks up the pacing of this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're just not into one of them, because like you you'll go back to a group for a certain amount of time, and you'll be like, fuck, can we go somewhere else? It breaks things up in a way that ends up being a problem. Oh, my God. You know what else that, that kind of reminds me of? Like... Because it's such a, a wide ensemble, hmm. and you don't need a main character for a story like this, but you needed a main story for the or a main character in the story I'm about to reference. Phantom the Menace. Phantom Menace. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yes. Yep. That's it. Um. Yeah. Phantom Menace had been more of a comedy. It probably would have worked. Oh, I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna go there right now, but. My current rewatch of the prequels opened my eyes to things. No, Phantom Menace is the best of those movies. Oh, no. I think it's the weakest now. No, no, it is easily the best. And Revenge of the Sith is easily the worst. (laughs) But 
Maybe we should redo a Star Wars one. Just one, because now we're on opposite ends of the prequel stuff. I think we should just do, uh, we should just do, like, prequel redux or something like that. Yeah, yeah we don't need to go through the rest. The rest are kind of like, yeah, we, we know how we feel about those. <laughs> but I think we should talk about them all together. Like, just do a really long episode talking about the prequels, because it's hard to separate them. I'm, I'm kind of up for that, uh... Because the quality upswing from each of them is uh, pretty impressive. The downswing is just incredible. <laughs> Anyways, Attack of the Clones actually fucks now, and I don't know how to like what to do with that information. Uh, I'm sure but, it does. Yeah, I wouldn't oh describe God, and it's... those films don't fuck. I'm sorry. They're, you can say they're good, but they definitely don't fuck. They're no, just... no, no. Attack of the Clones is 50 percent Obi Wan being a hard boiled detective, and 50 percent idiotic. Fuck me eyes. It's it's, it's masturbating great. in the shower. It's not fucking. <laughs> I'm sorry. Anyway, no, no, it's fine. That's Attack of the Clones. <laughs> I don't know any other way to put it. 1941 also does not fuck, but there's a lot of sexuality on display. Oh yeah, this is this is easily the most sexually charged Steven Spielberg film. Yeah, uh, I would argue to its detriment at a point. Um, maybe we'll get into it. Let's go to the very beginning of the film. All right, because there's, like, actually kind of a lot of plot and not a lot of, like, meat to it. Well, the problem is we're probably going to talk about the beginning for most of this episode, and then we could just stop, <laughs> like, because you don't, it doesn't matter. But this movie opens with a title crawl that's longer than the opening to Star Wars. Oh, and this is what I had completely forgotten. Um, I don't know if you want to touch on the title crawl, but really quick, for those that don't know... This opens with a Jaws parody. Oh, yes. Um, From the director of Jaws. Yeah, he's parodying his own movies, if you want to know how arrogant Spielberg was at the time. I, not only do I think that like that just doesn't work, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's, well, here's how much of a... Here's how much of a parody it is of... His movie. It is the same actress from the opening of Jaws. And I don't know if they went and shot in the exact same location or if they just recreated it exactly. Because that is the, the same shots of the actress going into the water naked. And mm. instead of a shark, it's a Japanese submarine. And she also doesn't die. Because that would be a very bad way to start a comedy. Yeah. Uh... I I don't think it's the same one because they covered it in like fog, so yeah, heavily, you know, and it would be a little weird to just go back to Martha's Vineyard for that one shot, basically, because it is just that one shot, and then she's in the water, and you can shoot that wherever, right? Also, so. she's a member of the Polar Bear Club in the opening, which is another just odd, like, like that's where it starts off, like, oh, is that a joke? Who's <laughs> got a lot of moments like that? I get from according to Spielberg that he said when he first screened it that he got the biggest laugh he had gotten in his entire career with this opening scene. Oh wow! So his friends are liars. <laughs> well, then he I'm said sorry. that he, he said that he got this huge laugh and then no one laughed for the rest of the screening. Oh. <laughs> so maybe Jaws parodies were just like unique at the time. I I guess, but like. SNL started when? 70... 75. 75. Okay, so literally the year Jaws came out. Yeah. So so they had to have done, like, a lot of Jaws shit. Well, that you, you right? ever see Landshark. Okay, so it's not like that, like, 
But have you ever hold on, hold on. I'm not letting that slide. Have you seen the land shark skin? <laughs> I have not seen the land shark skin. Oh god, you gotta check it out. Okay. <laughs> it's just the, it's like it's the dumbest premise. Cut this because it's just me explaining a joke. Okay. But it's just a, uh, like someone will be sitting at home and they'll get a they'll get a knock at the door and they'll be like, it's it's fucking Chevy Chase. It's this is his voice and he's like. I'm here for Mrs. Like, he just mumbles. <laughs> Dumbest setup. And I'll be like, oh, that's a plumber. And it's like, I didn't call a plumber. It's like, a candy gram. <laughs> like, are you that land shark everyone's talking about? And he's like, oh, no, it's not. And then they'll be like, oh, all right. And then they open the door and a shark attacks him. <laughs> <laughs> the whole shit. <laughs> The dumbest setup ever. <laughs> and they played the Jaws music, of course. So Oh, naturally. Um, but, yeah. Well, Airplane is a year after this. Which Airplane kind of has some... I think this foot, this movie kind of has a foot in the door of what Airplane was trying to do with, like, the zaniness. But Airplane, of course, goes to, like, absurdist levels. Mm-hmm. And I think that would have been a mistake to go here. But every now and then there's, like, a really absurd joke. And it just doesn't work. Well, the... You know what actually got me? It's not like surreal or anything like that. It just feels surreal because of the direction. When the tank strolls through the house. Oh, yeah. No, that's very funny. Yeah. Like, the movie can't sustain that properly. But, like, that's fucking hilarious. Like, I was dying. And then I was like, oh, yeah, I'm here. (laughs) Whoops. Now, I think Spielberg has talked about that he thought it was like the movie was too noisy and too much stuff blew up. And I actually think that might be the stuff that works the best. Oh, yeah, completely. When it goes big. Although, I will say, this this opening of the submarine, um, not funny. <laughs> like, no, no, it just sucks. It's just kind of like, oh, it's the Japanese. And they see a naked lady and the one guy gets, like, excited. It's very, uh sophomoric i guess like it's juvenile even yeah but then there's like some brilliant shit which like i i'm sorry i'm like jumping to the later stuff that i like more because <laughs> i like a lot of stuff towards the end um but like then there's that shit with the uh, treat williams standing in front of the american flag as it's like flashing on the dance floor and the two waves of people separate and show him while he's like getting ready to punch someone and i'm just like holy fuck that's a yeah, great like yeah image like representing what like spielberg kind of feels about like authority and and shit and it's in the middle of this like ludicrous failed comedy <laughs> we're gonna talk about how spielberg feel maybe feels about things because i don't know if it all adds up in this movie <laughs> no no no. I, I i don't think so either but like that that moment like really stuck with me this time i was like holy fuck yeah it's some great. great it's still spielberg so and then we get um, we go from that so we find out that the, the Japanese um, led by uh, Toshiro Mifune with a Nazi general on board the submarine which I don't know why it's just good they gotta have the Nazis in there and they're trying to find Hollywood because that's their next target they, they, I believe they, they're talking about honor a lot in this movie which is always a little eh, but yeah uh then we cut to this diner, and I want to say that as much as I like the dance number in this movie, I think this storyline might be my least favorite of the storylines. Man, the, the, the Japanese stuff, I just want to take out 
but well, yeah, I, I get that, but I'll get into some stuff yeah. I like about it later. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, I don't like this dancing kid. I don't like that he's in this weird love triangle with his girlfriend and the soldier. You're not wrong somehow, but yeah, it it because every time it because it keeps coming back to that like that like it just all feels very forced. And also, when in that same scene in this diner scene, you've got Dan Aykroyd and John Candy, and you want the camera on them <laughs> instead of this kid who I don't even know if this kid went anywhere. <laughs> I don't know. I'm mean, I, I, let me check. Let me check. What what's the kid's name like? I don't even remember. Or something. They call him that. I think. Oh, he was in uh National Lampoon's Movie Madness. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh The Ghoulies Part 4. Maniac Cop 3, Badge of Silence, The A-Team, The Equalizer. I know. The TV shows, by the way, not yeah. the movie adaptations. Yeah. Um, oh, most recently he was in a film called An Interview with God in 2018. And his last film role before that was All Dogs Go to Heaven 2 in 1996. Mm. His name is Bobby DeSico. Bobby DeSico. Yeah. I was hoping he's not one of those guys. There's like that dude who was in, I believe he was in American Graffiti, who was like the second choice to be... Uh, Luke Skywalker. Oh. And he never went anywhere. No, that would crush me. Poor guy. Yeah. I'm sure he's thought about that. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I don't even think the kid's like a bad actor. He's, he's just like... No, he's that, just that got the weakest story. Anything. He's just like a sex-crazed mm-hmm. kid. <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing with my girl? It's like, not your girl. And it's just like, ugh. <laughs> I, I like the zaniness of the separate stories like we talked about, but that one I feel like could have been interwoven with the uh, the higher up military stuff some more. You know what would have like a different way. You know what would have made it work, honestly. And this is mm. I, this is probably coming from you know the fact that I live in the 21st century. But if they had <laughs> made the his girlfriend the focus of that story instead of him, because she's ostensibly. Like, there's there's a really good scene in it, which isn't even really that funny. It's just weird, where there's, like, a big dance coming up, and they're informed that you can't bring your boyfriends to the dance. You're only going to be dancing with soldiers. And, like, all these women have been, like, coerced into basically having sex with soldiers. That was actually a subplot on the Marvelous Miss Maisel episode in Season 3. Hey, now. I watched that show because I'm an 80-year-old white woman. <laughs> But see, it's that. I'm guessing that was an interesting storyline. Oh, it wasn't like a huge thing, but oh. it, it was it was prevalent. And she was like, "What the fuck is this?" But uh, yeah, it's more interesting than the actual plot of the film. You do get a there were there were some funny lines in the diner scene um, when the owner is like, "You can't dance worth shit." <laughs> like, <laughs> that was funny. Well, that's we yeah. get the. Uh, we get the, the oft-repeated line from Dan Aykroyd where it's, I can't stand to see Americans fighting Americans. Which seems to be the only real idea that this movie has. <laughs> which, I guess this is where I should talk about uh, some very, very unfortunate inspiration for this movie. Oh, no. Um, this was, uh, it was um, partly sponsored by the Great Los Angeles Air Raid of 1942, which by all accounts, was, like, just kind of panic. Um, a bunch of guys thought they detected uh, 
Japanese fighters in the air, and so people just started like shooting mortars into the sky and anti-aircraft guns. And there's Good no evidence Lord. that there was no evidence that there was actually anything there. Um, it has gone down in Spielberg might have known about it because it is actually very popular in UFO communities. <laughs> Some people seem to believe that it was UFOs that were sighted. Um, partly because if you look at one of the, like the newspaper clippings where it's like the spotlights are all allegedly on an airplane, but there's nothing there. It kind of looks like a flying saucer. It was also the inspiration for the film, uh, Battle Los Angeles. Oh, I remember that film because it's not Skyline. Hey now. <laughs> Go watch Beyond Skyline, everyone. Um, but uh, the unfortunate thing that this movie was inspired by were the Zoot Suit Riots of 1943. That I am actually very familiar with. Um, they were race riots. Yeah. And uh, they even say Zoot Suits in this. Um, it was uh, where uh, primarily Mexican American youth um, came into con and African American youth came into conflict with uh, soldiers that they had some problems with, and it, it it's uh, difficult to say what inspired it. A lot of people believe there was a there was a murder um, in that area, I believe, and then the you know because it's Los Angeles, um, the the more marginalized communities faced the brunt of uh, police brutality, even though they weren't able to prove anything. And there were a bunch, there were a lot of race riots like this. We don't talk about it um, that happened um, at home during the war. And uh, this movie kind of brushes over that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's an unfortunate circumstance of one, Hollywood being a predominantly white male industry, and two, Spielberg also not having that perspective of color. <laughs> yeah, and also just our own inclination to sanitize our own history <laughs> yeah yeah that, that's a thing too like i'm i'm mexican but i'm i'm not like i'm not dark-skinned i'm i'm white passing right but the the zoot suit stuff i i always heard a lot about because my parents were both history buffs and um it was it i don't even know how it came up in conversation when i was younger but that's something that i've always kind of like known about like i don't remember a time where i did not know about it because it just was told to me so I don't know, but it's, um, yeah, the, the movie could have used more of that. Like, I don't think you should remake any Steven Spielberg film, but I think 1941, if you have to, like, for whatever God knows reason, you could make something, like, out of the trajectory of this story. Or if you're going to make this movie, don't make direct parallels to the Zoot Suit riots. <laughs> or, or, or give it to a Mexican filmmaker and tell that story, you know? Do something crazy. But uh, speaking of those girls, there's that the scene where the girls are being told what they're going to do. And that's kind of like the first scene where stuff starts getting out of control because an air raid siren is tested and people react like it's the real thing. And a, a guy dressed as Santa Claus pulls out a gun and just starts shooting. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's pretty, that's pretty great. <laughs> like, yeah. No, there's all these little gags that are sprinkled into things. And, like, you can make gifs out of them and you'll be like, if you saw them on Twitter, you'd be like, that looks fucking hysterical. What movie is that? You'll be like, oh, you don't need to, you don't need to rush out of your way to see it. It's 1941, but uh. And then shortly after that, we get the in an amazing entrance. We get John Belushi, <laughs> uh, crazy. I mean, this is at uh, the height of SNL too. Like this is like the this is right after the first five years of SNL officially end, um, before the unfortunate 1980 year. <laughs> 
where they fired everyone except Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo. <laughs> I really like Belushi in this, um, just because he's out of his mind. He plays a guy named Wild Bill. He immediately shows up and blows up a gas station on accident. I mean, he, he's, he, he lands a fucking fighter plane at a gas station in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Not just a- any gas station. Is that the supposed to be the gas station from Duel? It is the exact gas station from Duel, and I believe the gas station attendee is the same one from Duel. Yeah, I believe that woman. I, oh, I recognize. my snakes! Yeah, they should have found a way to work them in. But uh, That would have been great. And that guy in the in the um, gas station was that dude from Rosemary's Baby and like The Killing. I don't remember that actor's name, but uh, <laughs> I didn't know. Got the got the wide eyes. He's got like two scenes. He's the guy who's like, "Well, we heard it on the radio," and Belushi just shoots the radio. I want to say I really love Belushi's performance and energy, but I can't quote any of it because another unfortunate thing in this movie is uh. The I'm just gonna say it this one time. This the racial slur Jap is dropped about a hundred times in this movie. It's it's in a lot. Which that, that one's to be, in a lot. To be unreasonably fair, <laughs> you can't make a movie in this era without like that's just what people are gonna sound like. Which is a good argument to maybe just not make this movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean yeah. It's that was it's again, but it also would it would maybe work if there weren't really Japanese trying to attack Hollywood out there in the movie. I mean, yo, yeah, yeah, yeah. That that would uh, honestly just take that out, and it just becomes even fucking funnier, and then becomes you know again hindsight and all that. Although people, I'm pretty sure people were aware of the racism at the time. Uh, oh, yeah, there's always beings. someone, but I don't think this was a big enough hit for people to muster that much of a fuss about. Yeah, pro- probably a bad call just from the get-go. Like Spielberg said, you can't fix those like foundational problems at a certain point, which is not absolving anyone. But uh, just for the record, I also love Jim Belushi in this. John Belushi. John Belushi. Me. Jesus Christ. Wrong one. I know. I know. Uh, no, he, he he has my favorite bits in the film outside of the dance number. Oh, yeah, just- he's hysterical. There's a scene in it when he's just flying the jet and he like cracks open a bottle like on the and just drinks it. And then he finds like a like a little stall <laughs> and he just starts singing um the stars at night are big and bright deep in the heart of Texas. Like for no reason. <laughs> well, he doesn't just open a bottle. He cracks it open. He's like Yeah, he's like bottle bottle opener. <laughs> He smashes it against the window, drinks it like like a, a cartoon with even cartoon sound effects, like, and then drops it into like I think that's like the Mojave Desert. Yeah, and then you just hear like, how would you hear? What is what is that? It's cartoon logic, and it's so it totally works with him. And he, I mean, we he he, he tried to fill up the plane at a gas station. <laughs> which he then yeah, proceeds up. to blow up <laughs> and he's he, we should mention he sa- he thinks he's tracking um Japanese zeros and they're just not there there's no planes <laughs> we don't know which i got to be honest this is actually really good because we don't see a scene of him where like he thinks he's like there's never an attempt to justify what he's doing <laughs> he just suddenly shows up in a plane and it's like yep that's what he's doing 
<laughs> you know, every once in a while, a film, a television show, any story introduces a character and you know from the get-go that it's like love at first sight. Like, this is one of your favorite characters ever. That's that's me with John Belushi in yeah. 1941. Belushi has had that like three times at least in his career, you know? Because <laughs> yeah. it's like, he shows up in Animal House and he just pisses on their shoes. <laughs> just drinking, he's drinking a beer while he's pissing in Animal House. And then in Blues Brothers when he gets out of the prison, I mean... Yeah, Belushi could have had like that's a sh- that's a shame. He really could have had like a genuinely great acting career, and unfortunately passed away. Uh, and we're talking about we're doing this with Adam Sandler, who was just who was just everyone seems to be in agreement that he was robbed for an Oscar nomination this year. And like, I mean, we really... you know, it was like a serious like it, it's a straight up crime when not just like film Twitter like oh yeah Oscar for Sandman. But when critics, like, I keep bringing him up on this podcast, but, like, Mark Kermode was like, he will be nominated for an Oscar in his review of Uncut Gems. Yeah. And then he wasn't. Everyone was like, no. <laughs> you want to try that again? I turned off, like, uh, trend, like uh, whatever, tailored trending on Twitter. So I mm-hmm. get what people are... I'm trying to see what's actually being talked about more these days. That's probably for the best, yeah. And, uh... Yeah, that one was it was actually like the top story for a bit, which is crazy. And I mean, I woke up the morning of and I saw that Adam Sandler was trending and I was like, "Holy shit, he must have gotten it." Oh. And, then, and I was like, "Oh, fuck." Well, Sandler said that if he doesn't get the Oscar for Uncut Gems, he's going to intentionally make the worst movie we've ever seen. Well, and so get, we have a reckoning. Buckle up, folks. Happy Amblin. <laughs> I'm fucking ready. Yep. We started this for a reason. Either to see Sandman get the Oscar or meet the worst movie ever made. Fucking burn in hell, Academy. <laughs> get what you deserve. Uh, but Adam Sandler is not in 1941. But oddly enough, I think his energy would have fit. Oh, totally would have fit. He, he's a guy, um, but he had to be, he, I, I don't know if he could have played any of the characters in the movie. They would have had to have created an original character for him. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like like the Bear Jew in Inglorious Bastards. Exactly. Yeah. Um, then we get uh, yet another storyline, <laughs> um, which is Tim Matheson and Nancy Allen. And uh, Nancy Allen's thing is that she wants to have sex in an airplane, <laughs> which I'll be honest... I kind of like that storyline. <laughs> more than the the love triangle, at least? Yes, a lot more. Mainly because it's like, it's one thing where it's like, like, she's got some very obvious jokes. Like, she has the one joke, she's like, I tried it in the simulator, it doesn't work. Which is pretty funny. <laughs> but the th- the fact that she, like, actually knows all the stuff about airplanes. <laughs> so it's like, she's like, Clearly has a passion, it's just that passion is just also developed into some urges. Oh my god, it's kind of like Cronenberg's Crash. Yeah, hey! <laughs> but in an airplane. Um, that scene, though, that th- th- this introduction, there's some funny dialogue, but then once they actually try to have sex in the airplane, you get some very, very bad sex puns. Where it's like, open the cockpit and stuff like that. Um, and of course this all ends in them accidentally dropping a bomb. 
Which isn't the most well-timed joke in the movie, but whatever. Really, no well-timed joke in the uh. film. <laughs> even, even the stuff I like, it almost feels more accidental. Yeah, it does. Like, Spielberg doesn't do comedy like anything with John Belushi ever again in his career. And I'm sure part of that, like, just not even attempting to try to recapture that is, be- like, out of, like, hesitation because of the response this film got. But also just, like, I don't think he he meant to go all the way in certain areas. Yeah, well, I think it's important to remember that fucking, like, the Indiana Jones films are funny as shit. Like, Oh, yeah, they're fucking great. Like, everyone has that perception. And I think we talked about that a little bit with Han Solo, even in the Star Wars retrospectives, where everyone has that perception of, like, oh, he's suave and handsome. He's, like, a perfect action hero. But Harrison Ford was great in those roles because he's just constantly... He's a slapstick character. Yeah, he's a doofus in, as Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, he's an idiot. Like, he knows what to do, like, in certain situations, like, in firefights and stuff like that, or, like, the ship battles, which are great, of course. But, like, he's a moron. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why he's great. He's just, like, a dude with a heart of gold. But he's just he's just an idiot. <laughs> Every Everyone is just an idiot. <laughs> And we'll get into why uh, Indiana Jones really works um, in our next Spielberg-centric episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, But uh, I will say the comedy in this that always seems to work the best is either when it's, like, ludicrously huge or when it's, like, just shots where they will have, like, the camera on Belushi and they just kind of let Belushi do his thing. (laughs) But anything that, like, requires timing on, on the camera's part... Not on the actor's part, but on the camera's part, all of that comedy seems to fall flat, which is kind of incredible considering how Spielberg is known for, like, being a very tight director. Yeah, the the actual, like, telling of, like, the, the straight emotion or the drama of the scene, minus the comedy, again, I think it's actually really well handled. And not to just immediately jump back to the dance scene, but I will. Um, like, watch how that one couple initially leaves the dance floor and it's like very stern kind of far away you get the sense that it's like a bad situation and then immediately when that kid jumps back in the camera just swooshes right behind them and you get caught up in their energy instead and it's telling you so much information in the span of like 10 seconds and that's really quality filmmaking right there that's really hard to do and then that just doesn't translate to the actual like beats of like the ha-has and the hoo-hoos i think the movie just feels like too beholden to be like a laugh a minute comedy i it's that thing i think spielberg talks about like where he talked about uh what was it like the de- death of silence or whatever yeah uh, <laughs> and uh it's that thing where it's not even that no one's laughing it's just that you're you're supposed to laugh and you don't laugh like that really that always hurts a comedy when there's a joke on the screen and you're like, you can feel that it's the energy of a joke, but it's not funny. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like if they had just had more stretches of this movie, maybe where they didn't feel the need to be funny and the audience could have at least understood that when the comedy does happen, it would have worked more. I always think of, this is an odd comparison, but uh, I think of Dr. Strangelove, <laughs> which is a, I, I, a yeah, which is a con- which is you know a war comedy and that's a very much more serious satire but it's also a movie that doesn't have a joke in it for like the first 20 minutes 
Like, up until then, it's a very straight, like, hey, there's a nuclear war happening. And we just kind of watch those characters just do their thing for a little bit. There's, like, one joke where, um, uh, what's his name? Peter Sellers as uh, Muffley is, like, no, he's not Muffley in that scene, is he? I don't know. Um, as the British soldier, he's just like, he's like, we're in a shooting war. And it's like, oh, hell, are the Russians involved? Like, yeah, fucking who else would it be? But... <laughs> That's the only joke in, like, the first 20 minutes of that movie. And then it becomes a fucking ludicrous comedy. Whereas here, it's like, it feels like, hey, if something's not happening, people are going to get bored. And uh, that's not a great way to make comedy. No, and now that's how so many of them are made. Oh, yeah. So, well, I mean, now that's how our fucking regular movies are made. Yeah. With, I mean, if you watch those fucking Marvel movies... And then you just know that, like, if, if uh, Doctor Strangelove came out today, they'd be like, yeah, the first 20 minutes were really good, but then they started making it a comedy. Yeah, you couldn't have... Yeah, you can't do those, like, jumps and tones anymore. Uh, and you know, like, this is... Please don't yell at me. I I'm gonna. I don't think these you, directors are even comparable be, be, in terms be fucking, of quality. Be pretty fucking careful with what you're about to say. <laughs> uh... Taika Waititi is not Stanley Kubrick. I do not think they're oh, in the same nah. league or ballpark. I'm not going to shit just... on Taika Waititi. I mean, yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm a huge fan, but I think his handling of tone is part of the reason why so many people are drawn to his films. Because I think even when they don't recognize it, we like movies that are more than just one thing. And something like Hunt for the Wilder People, like, is seamless in how it transitions from like. A family adventure to like a really depressed, like a straight up like tragic moment, and then back to the comedy, to a little whimsical adventure, back to reality, and it's just that's a great film. That's yeah. that's my favorite of his this decade, and um, that's an incredible talent that I think more people miss than they realize. Yes, with these bigger films, and uh, 1941 could have also have done that with a little. A defter touch, I think. Exactly. We're still not finished introducing storylines. Oh, yeah. I guess we should finish that and then jump to the end. Yes. Um, Ned Beatty and his family. Uh, the Douglases? Is that who they are? I don't fucking know. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually going to look this up. Uh, they're, they're like a war-crazed family. The kids are like all out of control. His house gets chosen to put an anti-aircraft gun. He's like just, I don't know. Well, his wife doesn't want to. The wife doesn't want it, but he's like, I I bought this land. I'm going to defend it, you know? Yeah. Um, Again, like, that's very funny if there wasn't the real threat of the Japanese in the film. It's, I mean, you know what? To be fair, actually, it can still work. Like, you can still say that, like, hey, there might even be a real threat, but that doesn't mean these people aren't crazy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and we should mention that the wife is Lorraine Gary, who, uh, was, uh, the wife in Jaws. Mm-hmm. This is, like, like one of the other only few films she made. Aww. Hey, no, oh, because this was a universal film, too, huh? Um, yeah. No, this is when why. he was, like, he was, like, jumping back and forth between, like, he would do, like, a universal, and then he would do another studio, and then he'd go back to universal, and then do another studio, and then he'd go back to universal. Like he did that for about a decade, so yeah, she's 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 good. Although this movie, I, I, uh, I have no harsh feelings. We should say Dan Aykroyd and uh, um, John Candy 
are the ones who are setting up this gun. They're just kind of soldiers. They really don't have a story. They're just kind of like the soldiers walking through all the different stories. Mm-hmm. Um, they eventually get a tank. <laughs> <laughs> and they're just like driving it around. <laughs> but uh, this movie is one might be one of the first films to tap into what makes Dan Aykroyd funny, which is just him explaining things. <laughs> this is a whole scene of him explaining what not to do with the anti-aircraft gun and they just keep cutting back to him like in the middle of explaining it and it's just very technical jargon coming out of his very thick Chicago accent and it's just very funny you know that thread about them kind of like going through the stories I really wish there was more of an emphasis on that yeah I wish there had just been more with him and Candy in general like they, they're the two where it's like I remember seeing this as a kid and I like I'd even been told like this is Spielberg's bad film, but I'm like, God, oh, Belushi's in it. That's gotta be fun. And I just remember wanting more of like Aykroyd and Candy. Like I felt like they weren't in the movie enough. Cause like those are two comedy there's some comedy juggernauts in this film. Yeah. And they just don't get enough. Yeah. <laughs> I, I I got nothing else there. I agree I agree completely, but I, it's, We're still uh... not we're still not finished introducing things. I know. Holy holy shit, there's a lot in this movie. Um, which is shocking. And uh, this is where we go back to the Japanese for a little bit. And this is, uh, they're tr- so they're trying to find Hollywood. The joke is they can't find Hollywood. They, even though they have maps and stuff, they, they, they don't understand that Los Angeles is Hollywood. Like that seems to be the running gag. Mm-hmm. Which, uh, fine. I mean, you, you, know, think- no, you know what? That one actually works even better now. Because of just how L.A. and Hollywood are like, yeah, it's technically the same, like, county, but it's, like, not the same place at all. Because I've had conversations recently with people that are, like, visiting and stuff. And like, oh, so you're, like, you, like, live in Hollywood, right? I'm like, no, I'm, I'm more Los Angeles. So I'm like, oh, okay. So, like, what part of Hollywood? I'm like, no, no, you don't. That's not. Well, yeah, and, and fucking Hollywood is, I mean, Los Angeles County is, like, six cities. Uh, no. It, honest to God, might feel like... Like fucking ten at least. Yeah, well, I mean, like it, um, when if I say six more. cities, I mean like, and they're all on the scale of New York City. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's like cities with subsidies. Exactly. It's it's nuts. You people are insane. No, but, yeah, like I I I'm not gonna say what city I live in because internet. But like, um, I technically live in like unincorporated of my mm, city, so I, I live in the city of Los Angeles, but I'm not in the city of Los Angeles. So it's it's so fucking stupid. Wow. Well, we go back to the Japanese, and that's when uh, they're arguing, and Shimafuni's like, we have warriors out there who are descended from... They're descended from, like, samurai warriors. <laughs> like, they're ninjas or something. They get some weird descriptor. Where it's like, they'll, they'll be... We already have them. They're infiltrating the land. They'll find out where to go. And then we cut to them disguised as Christmas trees. <laughs> Which got the that got the biggest laugh from me in the whole movie. <laughs> it was just just the image of them. They would like run a little bit and then stop. Yeah. For like it's no a cartoon. Yeah, That's, that totally works. It was just ridiculous. I I just like when later like they're ganging up on the dude to like get information out of him, and the the trees start slowly huddling around. Right, like, oh, yeah. what, like first they start at a distance, and then one has like the ornaments on it. <laughs> it's like. Why? 
<laughs> like, that's great. It's so great. <laughs> yeah, those guys, they end up kidnapping Slim Pickens. So then on the submarine, it's Slim Pickens, Christopher Lee, and Tashiro Mifune. <laughs> United at last. <laughs> No, you know what? That's a good scene too, though. No, no, that's honestly there's something brilliant about putting those three personalities together. Because <laughs> he's like such an idiot, and he's like, "I ain't telling you nothing." <laughs> like, <laughs> like searching. You're trying him. to get one up on me. Yeah, and he's like, "Oh, you're looking for Hollywood? Sure, I'll wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> also, his name is Hollis P. Wood, so. <laughs> That becomes a whole thing. <laughs> and it's just like, I don't know, there's something kind of subvert, like, funny about, it's like, here's the American, here's the German, here's the Japanese. <laughs> like, And the American is the idiot one. Yeah. And he he has a box of Cracker Jacks that had a, uh, a compass in it that they were going to use <laughs> to find L.A. and he swallows it. And we get an extended sequence of Slim Pickens pretending to take a huge shit. Like, what? <laughs> well, once they brought out the prune juice, oh yeah, I started laughing. Just, I've, I've been talking shit about how the comedy like is intended in this film and like how it's not really working. That that was gold. <laughs> that was there's another. There's another really good one where he swallows it and he's like, you ain't getting nothing out of me. I'll never talk. And then a knife just comes in the frame and he's like, now hold on there. <laughs> 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 does he die? Oh, I guess he does. Huh? Like, Cause I we never know. see him again. He gets out of the oh, submarine shit. and he's like, wait a minute. I'm in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> and then they just leave him. <laughs> Well, I guess if it's, like, cartoon logic, then that's him surviving, right? I guess, but, like, they just didn't, like, think we never find out what happened to Slim Pickens. <laughs> Such a weird story. I, I would still probably take out the Japanese stuff, but that... I know, like, that's the only... Holy shit. That's the only time it really works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just him, just... Once throwing him in is what makes those scenes funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and then we get yet another storyline. <laughs> I'm forgetting. What, el- what else is left? Murray Hamilton and Eddie Deason, who are stuck in the fucking Ferris wheel. <laughs> where they're like... And Murray Hamilton's, of course, afraid of heights. And Eddie Deason does everything you can to upset a man afraid of heights. <laughs> and they're meant to... They're lookouts. They're put up there to look out in case... Japanese planes come to attack. That's basically it. And, but inexplicably, Eddie Deason pulls out a a fucking ventriloquist dummy while they're... What is that? I I don't know. (laughs) That doesn't make any sense. That that one's a little too uh, broad for me. I don't know. I find it very funny because Murray Hamilton is so genuinely upset by everything that's happening. And then the Ferris wheel blows up. Oh, okay. Well, the Ferris wheel bit. Oh, my God. Here, you know what? Another genuine highlight of the film. Amazing use of miniatures. Oh, yeah. I actually had that. I was going to do that joke because that was my famous, the only thing I wrote down about Alien Resurrection. (laughs) It was great (laughs) use of miniatures. 
Um, and I guess one of the Spielberg's regrets is that he didn't have the miniature. He, he directed all the miniature sequences himself, and he's like, I should have had a team do that that I trusted. Like I was too hands-on with everything and i don't know if maybe a team could have done it just as well but all the miniature stuff in this is fantastic yeah it it looks so good like i guess you can kind of tell like honestly who gives a shit it looks fan it looks amazing oh yeah and it's it's all hidden in fog which might be the explanation for the fog in the earlier shots of the movie Mm -hmm. oh there you go i didn't even put that together spielberg you've done it again and then we get a very uh, another character is introduced who doesn't really have a storyline, but uh, uh, f- uh, Frank McRae, who is the black uh, private, Private Ogden Johnson Jones, who walks in and he's basically just like, "I'm angry," <laughs> and there's like a weird like racial thing going on there. Like the like the movie is very clearly like trying to like be satirical. Like it's not trying to be racist, but it's like what what are they? I have no idea what they were trying to do with him. I don't know. It, it's kind of that that problem in movies where it's like just because you're doing something like broader as a caricature doesn't make it funnier, and it doesn't make it okay either. Yeah, I don't even know if he was meant to be a character caricature caricature though. <laughs> Sorry, I can't pronounce that word today. Uh, That's okay. Or ever. I can't pronounce anything ever. Um, but he, uh, like, he's just, like, angry black man. <laughs> and then there's, like, racial tension where it's, like, he's, like, I've been assigned to your unit. You can't complain. Because, you know, famously at the time we had segregated units. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, and there's not a wrong thing because, you know, part of the reason why, you know, the civil rights movement kind of got some traction was because a lot of, you know, African-Americans fought and died for this country. And it woke some people up to being like, hey, how come they can do that, but they're not allowed on baseball teams, you know? <laughs> like, um, not, I'm not trying to give total credit to that, of course. Uh-huh. Um, black people were fighting for equal rights since, like, day one. <laughs> so, but that's, the war did kind of transform how the, we saw each other in this country. Uh, but it just doesn't go anywhere. And then there's a really awkward joke where something blows up and Private Ogden Johnson Jones gets, like, powder on his face, so he's in white face, and John Candy gets, like, oil on his face, so he's in black face. <laughs> and they laugh at each other. And it's like, what? Like, I can't... I'm not even willing to say it's offensive. I just don't get it. <laughs> I don't get a lot of this movie. Like, the decisions behind it, I guess. Alright, we got, like, two storylines left. Holy shit. I genuinely am forgetting what's left now. Well, now we get we go with, uh... Fucking Tim Matheson and Nancy Allen. Like, Tim Matheson overhears that there's there might be planes at one of the bases in the mountains. And so he goes up there with Nancy Allen. The problem is that that base is run by Warren Oates who's playing Madman Man- Maddox. <laughs> who's a guy who they basically, from what you overhear in the film, is that he's so crazy, they put him at a base that has no strategic value. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, he still thinks that there are secret Japanese forces moving all around him. <laughs> so he's out of his mind. <laughs> and I, I'm pointing him out because the Trump administration, until a couple months ago had a guy named Mad Dog Maddox in the administration. (laughs) 
and he was the sane one. <laughs> so <laughs> this country's going fucking out of control. Uh, we're recording this right now as the impeachment trials are starting, by the way. Yeah, so, so we'll see how this holds up. Future people, we do not yet know how that plays out. Also, the Trump administration maybe tried to get a U.S. ambassador assassinated. <laughs> and some people are very angry about the lack of a handshake. Oh my god. That seems to be the dominant story. <laughs> It's not even, it's the fucking, the, the rich realized that Bernie could win. I'm sorry, that's what's happening. <laughs> Somewhere at well, the CNN. The framing of the news stories, too, it, it have not helped with that. Yeah. Because of the people that fucking run them. Yeah, well, it's basically, what well, you know, the rich run them, and it's like, well, now we gotta fucking run every bad story against Bernie. Mm-hmm. So, that's exactly what's happening. And I just hope that maybe this country recognizes it more than the United Kingdom recently did. <laughs> what do you think? Let's just let's just make a guess. Do you think we'll, we'll we, it'll uh, think it'll work out? <laughs> I honestly don't know. I I really want to believe that it will. I think people hate the media in this country enough that it might work. I mean, that it might like, like not like pan out for the media. <laughs> oh, that would be so fucking perfect if like. Trump's idiocy with like the media is lying to you to stay in power. It like somehow snowballed into supporting Bernie as, as presidential nominee. Well, the thing is that I mean, Trump is wrong in why he does it, but he's not wrong in the fact that the media sucks. Yeah, it, it's it's that broken clock, you know? Yeah. It just happens to be right this one time for the wrong reason, but it is. Yeah, that seems to be anytime Trump is right, that's usually what it is. Yeah. And that's why Bernie is kind of the only antidote to him. Because <laughs> Bernie is also right, right, but for the right reasons. <laughs> so, not not to cast aspersions at the other candidates. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll fucking cast aspersions. Like, you know what? No, no, no. Like, this might get cut out of the episode. I don't give a shit. But, like, I see so many people being like, what, you don't like the democratic party and i'm like no because those people don't have their best interests at heart for people that are disenfranchised and people in my family people i care about like so fuck off you know we we elected someone that for if you were a muslim american the two choices last election were a candidate that was going to bomb muslims or a candidate was gonna th- that was going to throw Muslims out and then bomb them. You know, they're not great options. So, I'm trying to think if there's any more. The only other storyline is Robert Stack as the general who's trying to go see Dumbo. Which, of all the scenes Spielberg could have shown from Dumbo, he shows the scene with the crows. Maybe that's something to do with, like, the satirical side, you know? No, like, it's not. <laughs> I... I... I'm trying to figure it out. I don't think that is, but I'm just like, why? Why would that be there? I watched Dumbo recently. Like, they're not... People aren't kidding when they talk about those crows. Anyways, go see Tim Burton's Dumbo. No! <laughs> I'm just kidding. I haven't seen it. I'm, I, I'll probably not watch it anytime soon. Um. Anyway, all these stories collide and then the movie ends. That's Yeah, that's... that's really what happens uh basically and the, the dance the, number's terrific the dance number happens basically. in it there's a fight at the dance uh 
Nancy Allen and Tim Aston trying to have sex in the plane ends up looking like a Japanese attack. People can't tell. Belushi comes in. They also think he's the enemy. It just everyone starts shooting at each other, and then they actually destroy the submarine at some point. Um, Ned, Ned Beatty's entire house collapses into the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> the Ferris wheel blows up, and Belushi crashes his plane. And then he's like been like talking tough the whole movie, and then at the first sight of blood, he faints. <laughs> and those are the other jokes in the movie, and then it ends. No, no, he he starts physically attacking the submarine once he puts oh, yes. on it, <laughs> oh, yes. which was actually pretty great. Everything with Belushi in this is gold to me. Yeah, Belushi is really. Uh... You should also look up the trailer for this movie. Is just him talking to the camera. Oh my god! I didn't watch it before this, so it was shot by John Milius. Wow. Uh, is very, he in character? Yes, yes, it's a very good trailer. The year is 1941. The place, a deserted airstrip, where a message is about to be delivered to the people of the United States by the one man capable of igniting fire on the heart of the American bosom. Captain Wild Wayne Kelso. How did you get, Wild Wayne? Five. Confirm? Well, two, maybe. It's a, it's a very good trailer for this movie. Honestly, just take all the Belushi scenes, make a short film out of it, put it on YouTube, that's the movie. Yeah, I I honestly think maybe you could edit this to a 90-minute movie that would work. Like, even with the material that's here. Maybe, maybe. It it would be much better. Because honestly, it's just, it's too fucking long. Yeah, I think think if it was 90 minutes, you'd get to the end and be like, that wasn't so bad. Yeah. But But... I'm, I'm just saying, like, even just the Belushi scenes, because his stuff just, like, it contains like a momentum of zaniness that keeps escalating in fun ways. So by the end, when all the other shit's happening, you keep all that other shit in the movie, but it just goes with it. Like it it still flows because it'll still be just crazy. John Belushi. It really is kind of a movie. It is kind of a movie that is just setting up pins for John Belushi to knock over. (laughs) There you go. But eh. Yeah, it's 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 a very okay movie, honestly. It just it, 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 it there's no fucking reason for this movie to be two and a half hours long. Yeah, um, like, going that was the moment it, uh, when I realized when I wrote down right after Slim Pickens got kidnapped was when I checked how far into it I was, and that's when I was like, oh my god, this is a fucking long movie. Yeah, yeah, that's what makes it feel like one of the worst movies ever made. It is absolutely not. Yeah, I not even that. close. Yeah. Um, it might, I, it, I haven't, I'm not going to say yet, it might not even be Spielberg's worse. As of right now, as of where we are in the retrospective, hands down, yes. Well, yeah, but at this point is. he's done, like, five movies. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, if we have to tally it up, I don't want to, like, spend too much time talking about that, but, like, and it this totally is, is the worst one we've talked about for him. It's just, uh, it's also a significant drop-off. Like, it's not even, like, just the lesser one, like, it just is the worst. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, but compared to the Sandler side of things... Oh, yeah. This is about on par. Sure. 1941. That's, that's the movie. You know what this movie really needed? John Williams. No, John Williams did do the score. Oh, well then more. <laughs> um, it needed an exclamation point in the title. 1941? Oh, like yeah. Shazam. Like, like, well, like, like the, like, Airplane and Top Secret. Like... Oh, yeah. 
I think that would have worked here. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks for joining me, Matt. This was the shortest Steven Spielberg retrospective so far. Is it? And also, maybe the one that was the most difficult to like find things to talk about, oddly enough. Or, you know what? No, Night Gallery. Never mind. It, yeah, Night Gallery had nothing, but... Uh, here is just like it's. It really is that thing where it's like after a while, there's like it's honestly great that this movie is so front loaded with storylines because we could at least talk about that and then just stop. And just honestly, the John Belushi scenes. Watch all of those. Watch the Christmas tree scene, um, and then watch the dance number because I'm pretty sure that's like just fully uploaded to YouTube. Like it, it's so good. It's one of the best sequences of Spielberg's career. Like as an isolated sequence, I think it's really terrific. Uh, and I'm. it makes me more excited for West Side Story, honestly. According to Jack Nicholson, director Stanley Kubrick allegedly told Spielberg that 1941 was great, but not funny. That, sure. I believe that, actually. Mm-hmm. Matt, where can the people find you? I'm an EmperorOTN1 at Twitter.com. Why is it still the one? I don't ask. <laughs> okay. I've, yeah, you, can follow. you motherfucker. I, uh, the amount of shit I'm dealing with right now. <laughs> I don't have time to fix the fucking one on the thing. It's in the settings option. You can follow me on twitter.com at no, it's, it's more complicated than just the settings. <laughs> Check out the Waffle Press on you YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, I'll Patreon. fuck you up. <laughs> And I'll just be sharing clips of John Belushi <laughs> as this episode drops. So enjoy that. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. We have been professionally unprofessional. Fuck you, Diego. All right. Oh, wait, I didn't stop recording. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm saying we got a great country here. We got to keep it that way. Captain Wild Wayne Kelso. United States Army Air Corps. Say to each and every one of you. So long, Mama. I'm off to Yokohama. This Christmas, Universal Pictures and Columbia Pictures proudly prepares you for next Christmas. Steven Spielberg presents 1941, the night the rising sun fell on Hollywood.